0: You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, happy Halloween, happy Reformation Day, or whatever you all call it. Uh, I've seen already some of your photos. I'm afraid to see other pictures. Uh, I've seen some of those on Instagram and uh, through text messages. But uh, this is a time of year when we dress up, where there's lots of candy, lots of candy options, and where the weather's changing. But it's also that time of year where a lot of us are doing Christmas photos, or at least we're getting ready for Christmas photos. Hopefully, if you're single, hopefully not solo photos. Uh, if so, that's, that's fine, that's your thing. But a lot of couples, and a lot of families do their photos about, about now. Uh, I guess that the fall foliage is a good backdrop for Christmas photos. Now, uh, growing up, let me just say this, I wasn't always the best kid. I would probably categorize myself as a mixture of energy, of anxiety, of mischief, and boldness. Anyways, anytime my family wanted to do the Christmas photos, I always had one particular pose, just one particular pose, and I'm going to show you a sample of this. It'll be up on the screen. There's me. Uh, during Christmas time, probably not very appropriate for church, but like I said, I was not the best kid growing up. I like to stir the pot. Uh, we should probably move on to the next, next slide. I was not a church kid growing up. Uh, I didn't really care for religion or God or really any of this that we're doing this morning. I remember really referencing God a few times and I thought about this uh, getting ready to speak this morning. Uh, really three, three, three or four times growing up, I remember thinking about God. Uh, the first time when I was just very young, I was uh, probably nine or ten, and I found a, um, a Bible picture book in my room. And I opened that book and started reading the Old Testament. And uh, it lasted for about five seconds because I was just so, so, so bored with the Bible. Uh, Later on, as I get to high school, I realized eventually that all of my friends were Catholic. And because I'm a contrarian, I then said, I'm a Protestant. Uh, And then maybe one other time, when I was uh, in late high school, I was playing a, a first person shooter game. And I was losing so bad. Some of you, uh, you freaks love Call of Duty. Not Call of Duty, but a game like that. It was like zero to a hundred. And I remember just flipping out in rage and cussing out the God that I had no idea who he really was. By the time I got to college, I knew I was in the real world now. And I knew my choices were going to have impacts on my future. And so I became obsessed about being the most, being accomplished, being achieved. I joined the student government, I got into the honors program, and many other things. But in light of that, I still wasn't the best kid. I knew deep within myself that I was less than I should be. I had darkness deep within my heart. I had secrets, and no amount of student government or honors, or A's seemed to be able to get all of that out of my soul. But that's when something happened. The grace of God found me as a 19-year-old. I was a business major, and I was living with three other guys from my high school. We weren't horrible, but we certainly were doing the state college experience. And out of a series of events, God's providence, we all ended up going to A church that Sunday morning and at that church I experienced something I had never experienced I met people who were characterized by love by hope by optimism by hospitality I'd never seen it before quite like that and it was there where I eventually heard the gospel in a way that hit me hard I actually heard I personally heard that Jesus loved me. That he died for me. That building your life on other things will always lead to loss, but building your life on him will always lead to gain. And in that moment, it became so personal to me. It shocked my system. It terrorized my worldview. It broke me. And on that day, I became a Christian and everything changed. Now, What that experience is called is grace. It isn't just an intellectual concept, it's actually an experience. It's a lived concept. It's the crack of Christianity, we might say. If you're in Christ, it's the thing that transformed you into liking church, into actually liking the Bible. People who give our money, who easily desire to change our lives. And this morning, what we'll see is that if you're in Christ, grace is the most important thing because it's the thing that saved us. It's the thing that made us alive. It brought us salvation. We are saved by grace. A lot of us may cringe at that word saved this morning. We might imagine the pudgy Southern Baptist preacher with the sign saying, are you saved? But there's probably no better word that summarizes what happens when we come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We're saved by His grace. And that's really where I'm going this morning. It's the main idea of this passage and the main idea of this message. And it's this, God has saved us by His grace. God has saved us by His grace. If you're in Christ this morning, His grace has changed you it's saved you, it's transformed you. Now my outline is going to also be up on the screen. It's going to flow right from the text here at King's Church. We uh, preach and teach from the Bible. We like to say, what, what is the Bible saying to us? We don't want to add a fluff to it, but we actually want to say, what does, what does it say to us? And so uh, we're going to look at the first 10 verses of Ephesians and what we see here are three points. What we're saved from, what we're saved through, and what we're saved to. Let's look at this first one, what we're saved from. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead, that's past tense, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, past tense, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. Happy Halloween. Among whom we all once lived in the—that pa- was a joke. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So the passage starts by reminding us of what we've been saved from. And you'll notice this is a very different list than what our culture generally says they would need to be saved from if, in fact, they believe they needed to be saved from something. In fact, this list is the exact opposite. Deeply ingrained in our culture are a few ideas that put these verses in some deep tension. Consider three. Number one, there is no Satan. There is no Satan. While a lot of people actually do believe in the devil, practically speaking, the mainstream thought today is that all evil, all problems can be traced back to something natural, something natural. Thus, the thought goes, evil comes from an unjust social system. Evil comes from bad brain chemistry. Evil comes from bad parenting. In other words, the thought goes that evil, the origin of evil, is rooted in biology and sociology and psychology or some combination of these roots. So if we can fix the family systems, if we can fix the social systems, if we can fix the chemistry issues, if we can fix the neurological systems, there will be no more evil. The thought goes there is no transcendent evil. There's no unseen spiritual realm. Now another idea, so that's the first one, there is no Satan, the idea goes. The other idea that puts these verses in tension is the main problem in the world is other people. Hopefully you don't believe this, but maybe, maybe you do. Well, there's some truth to that, I guess, uh, but whole, wholeheartedly the idea would go the main problem in the world is other people. The assumption is that other people are the primary problem in the world. So we put locks on our doors to protect our houses, we put filters on our internet to protect our phones and our computers, we want to keep the evil out. The idea here is that evil and problems come primarily from outside of us. It's people who are, who are unlike us, we might say, that are the main problem. For the Conservatives, it's the Liberals. They're destroying family values. They're breaking the backbone of society. They're trying to remove gluten from everything we eat. <laughs> For the Liberals, it's the Conservatives. They're racists. They're proud. They don't even recycle. The idea here is that evil and problems come primarily from outside of us. The main problem with the world thus, with this idea is that evil comes from outside of us. It's other people's fault. And thirdly related to this idea is another idea. Deep down inside, we're not really that bad. The idea here is that we're good people who sometimes get confused and make bad choices. The famous psychologist Carl Rogers expresses this idea really well. He essentially says we're basically good. We have an inner goodness, but if we make bad choices, it's because the broken societal systems have eclipsed our goodness. We've lost touch with our goodness. We've lost sight of who we really are, a good person. So it's this idea that deep down inside, we're all really not that bad. But notice, this passage starts off by saying the truth. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In other words, the primary problem wasn't other people. The primary problem wasn't that we're good people who sometimes made bad choices. The primary problem was ourselves. Our own sinful natures. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. The imagery here is that before we knew the grace of God, We were enslaved. Notice that word following shows up. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. In verse 3, we carried out the desires of our body and mind. We followed whatever desire we had at the time, according to our sinful nature. Now that word followed here in English is actually very weak. In the Greek, it has to do with being mastered, with being controlled by something. And this is the picture we're given here, that before we knew Jesus, before we had a personal relationship with him, we were mastered, we were controlled, we weren't free. We were completely controlled by the sinful desires of our hearts and our minds. We were like a dead body, unable to exert itself. Now notice there's three agents here. First, we were enslaved to the course of the world, verse 2. That is the spirit of the age. The motivating impulse of a culture. And it can show up in different ways. We were stuck in the wrong operating system. Second, we were enslaved to the prince of the power of the air, verse 2. That is the devil, the unseen world in between heaven and earth. In some capacity, we were duped. We were agitated, we were in league with a worldview where the church didn't matter, where redemption didn't matter, where righteousness didn't matter. And third, notice we were enslaved to ourselves, called here the passions of the flesh. That phrase means our sinful nature, our self-centered human nature. That thing was our primary driver our primary master. It's why we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. It was the reason we were slaves to sin. To be a sinner, according to the Bible, is to have a little computer inside of the very center of your heart. And that little computer is on 24, 7, 365 days a year. And do you know what that little computer is doing? Well, it's analyzing everything. It's viewing everything. It's seeing everything. Every person, every event, every object, every setting, every moment. And it's basically saying, what is in it for me? Everything is being analyzed with regards to how it benefits your happiness, your reputation, your glory, your power, your comfort, your control of things. Everything is analyzed in terms of how does it help me? How does it fit my interests? How does it make me happy? That self-centeredness, that's the sinful nature, we might call it. Now that self-centeredness can certainly make a person a tyrant, a bad kid, it can make them egotistical. But often what it does is it makes a person religious. It makes them moral. God and religion can actually become means to an end, where it becomes all about you. And if it's all about you, If you desperately need to feel good about yourself, there's no better way than to put people in debt. There's no better way to control people. There's no better way to feel good about yourself than being a good person. There's no better way than to be moral, doing it all ultimately for your own sake. Self-absorbed, self-justifying, self-centered, using everything to serve ourselves. This is the sinful nature. This was our condition before knowing him. Remember it. We were enslaved to ourselves, to this world's spirit, to the evil one. And it led to a verdict we'd never hear on Oprah or Dr. Phil. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, verse 3. And in light of that this morning, we're reminded that to be rescued from this, it wasn't that we needed to be improved, or edited, or updated, or rebooted, or enhanced. To be rescued from this, we needed to be forgiven, and resurrected, and restored, and redeemed. We needed to be saved. And this is exactly what God did for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which really leads us to our next point, what we're saved in Christ Jesus. What is grace? Well, it's the battle of Helm's Deep, where in the worst possible moment after a sleepless night and endless ongoing bloodshed with impossible odds against the enemy, the dwarf Gimli says, the sun is rising. And we remember Gandalf's words, look to my coming at first light on the fifth day at dawn, look to the east and suddenly he appears on a horse with thousands and charges down the mountain to bring hope and light in an impossible situation. What is grace? It's the movie Dunkirk, where hundreds of thousands of British troops are are they're trapped, they're stranded, and the enemy is dropping bombs from the sky. There's not enough boats to get hundreds and hundreds of thousands of troops home. It's not a winnable situation. They can't get home. And at the very worst moment, the Royal Navy commander, he sees something in a distance. He looks through his binoculars and a fellow officer says, what do you see? And he sees hundreds of British civilian boats coming to rescue them. And he says, I see home. God's grace is God doing something impossible by making us alive through Jesus Christ. It's where he breaks our chains and He gives us a new heart by the power of His Spirit in our lives through faith in Jesus Christ. It's what caused John Newton, the slave trader, to change and write this song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Now notice, we're told... The specifics here about what grace actually is. It's not just an impersonal force. Grace is to be made alive together with Christ. Verse 5. It's to be raised with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places. Verse 6. Grace is something that happened to us when we entered into relationship with Jesus Christ. Grace is something that happened to us when we entered into relationship with Jesus Christ. What happened is that God united us to Jesus Christ. What grace says is that the moment we believed, we were forever united to Jesus Christ. We're in Christ. So much so that these past tenses matter. Through grace, we were raised with Him. Not literally yet, but because we're so united to Him, we're dead to sin and alive to God. It means that because we're so united to Him, everything He has is ours, And everything he is is ours through grace we were seated with him in the heavenly places not literally yet but because we're so united to him in god's eyes we're legally already there which means this morning if you're in jesus christ god is for you he honors you he accepts you he rejoices over you He's committed to you in the same exact way he is to his son at his right hand. It means that because we're so united to him, everything Jesus has is ours and everything he is, is ours. We're loved this morning. We're honored this morning. We're accepted by God, even despite our sins. We're treated as Jesus' actions and Jesus' life is to be treated this is what it means to be united to Jesus Christ. And it's a, cent- it's a central theme in the Bible: Him and us and us and Him. But notice there's also a dark side to all of this. If we're so united to Him that we get everything he deserves, well, he then also is so united to us that he got everything our lives deserved. 2 Corinthians puts it like this, God made him sin who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we would be the righteousness of God. It's a great exchange. In other words, for those of us in Christ, God treats us according to the very righteousness of Jesus. But on the cross, God treated Jesus according to our sin. It means that we deserved the cross. We put ourselves at the center of our own lives. We made it all about us when God Almighty should be at the center. This is His world. It's His story. The throne belongs to Him, not to us. But what is salvation? What's just the opposite? The the essence of salvation is just the opposite. God putting Himself on where we deserve to be, namely on the cross. On the cross, Jesus went and he took our seat. The punishment that we deserve, the very wrath of God because of our sins. He suffered in agony. He was cut off from the Father. Though he was equal with the Father, he emptied himself of the glory of God. And he came down and he took the place of a servant. And he said, my life for your life. He went into our seat so we could sit in his seat. As one Scottish poet said, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Christianity, he did it all because he loves us, because he cares for us. Because he wanted to show off his kindness, verse 7, forever and ever. That the God of the universe is a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in mercy and steadfast love, not giving us what we deserve. All of that seen concentrated in the death of Jesus and in the resurrection of the Son of God, which really leads us to our last point this morning what we're saved to what we're saved to. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So for those of us in Jesus Christ this morning, those of us finding ourselves knowing Him, trusting Him, this morning His amazing grace has come into our lives. It is the gift of God. It's a completely lopsided gift. It's a grace that has completely accepted us as we are. A grace that's changed our lives, not being content to leave us as we were. It's a grace that was given to us without regard to our worth or our merit or our performance or our pedigree or our background. And it's a grace that's united us to Jesus who saved us by His own works, by His own glorious life. And as a result, it leads us to what? Humility so that no one may boast. Now it leads us to humility because, as I mentioned, it first shocks us. It terrorizes our worldview. It breaks us. Why? Because it leads to no more boasting. See, life outside of Jesus Christ means that every single one of us is looking for something to boast in to be proud about, to give ourselves confidence to face life. Everybody's trying to find something that's going to give them a sense of value, of worth, of strength. Everybody is looking for something. In a way, everybody has a kind of self-righteousness to them. Everybody, even the people who hate self-righteous people. Even the people who says, I don't ever judge anyone. I don't ever tell people they're wrong. I'm not narrow-minded. Why? Well, in that sense, they feel better than them at that moment. But grace comes and says, give it up. You're just like them. It takes you so low, and yet at the same time, it builds you up so high. Well, how does it do that? Well, it does that because the grace of God gives you a new identity. It changes you. It transforms you, and here's how. Everybody in this world, until the grace of God comes, gets their self-image by looking down on someone else. Think about it. Take some time and think about it. We might say, I have a better career, I was more successful, I did something harder than you, I'm married, I have more kids, I'm a better parent. Boasting can help us face this life with some level of confidence. But when the gospel comes, you finally start looking up at somebody. And who's that? Well, there's only one man in the history of the world who because the life he lived could have boasted. There's only one who could have said before God, look at my life. I have done everything perfect. Look at what I've achieved. Look at what I've done. Now give me what I ask. Give me the world. That humbles us as we look to the perfect righteous one. But what he actually goes on to do actually builds us up. Philippians 2 says, though that he was in the very form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Meaning this is the one person who could have actually boasted. He's the one person in history who actually deserved to have God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But in his heart on the cross, what Jesus Christ heard was God saying, depart from me. He did it so that we who deserve to hear God say on the last day, depart from me, will hear in Christ through our knowing him, well done, my good and faithful servant. That humbles us low, yet His amazing grace builds us up so high. It reminds us of what this verse closes with, that we are indeed His workmanship. Verse 10, for we are His workmanship, that is His masterpiece, His work of art, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The point there is that God has done for all of us this so that we live a life, we live out our purpose, we live out His purposes as His church and as His individuals and lead lives that bring glory to Him, we might say. Grace, we should say, doesn't lead us to passivity. It leads to action. Evidence that we actually understand God's grace will be seen in our desire and our ability to show off that grace to others. Grace isn't a free pass to sin, it's a supernatural empowerment to not sin. It raises the bar, grace does, but it also enables us to joyfully jump over that bar. The point is is that nothing is wasted in your life because of the grace of God. You and I are his workmanship, his masterpiece, and He has a purpose for us. As we move to a time of the Lord's Supper this morning, be reminded that if you find yourself in Jesus Christ this morning, over time, you're going to find out that everything that has ever happened in your life, even your tragedies, your troubles, everything about you, your age, your ethnicity, your gender, your sufferings, your talents, your weaknesses, your strengths, makes it possible for you to do certain works in this world that only you can do, that are prepared for you in advance. Don't waste His grace. Don't waste His mercy. Let's praise God this morning for His grace to us in Jesus Christ. And perhaps you don't know that grace this morning. I'd invite you to trust Him, to put your faith in Jesus, the one who will carry you to the heavens, who will justify you before God, who will forgive you of all your sins and give you a place at the right hand of God. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.